welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Morning, 11 a.m. We awake, we're ready. This is not an easy one, okay? Just warning you now, this will be a contested sermon. You will not want to hear it. You will feel uh, guilt and shame. You will feel uneasy. And uh, uh, I can't help that. So how do you intro sermon? (laughs) How not to? I want to pray as we talk about the book of James. And then we're just going to jump in. So grab your Bibles. But let me just pray over you. uh, Because I know what's coming. Father, we release all shame to you in Jesus' name. We, you are a shame breaker, shame exterminator, and that shame is from the devil. Um, we pray for healthy guilt from your Holy Spirit. Convict us. Lead us into repentance that we may become what you hope we become, not because it makes you love us more, but because you love us so much, we want to respond to your love. I pray, Jesus, for freedom. I pray for joy And where there is hiding, I pray you bring us into light. And I pray, Lord, for a a new way of seeing things that matter to you. Help us in the power of your word to have revelation for our unique circumstance in life, that we may honor you with what we've been given in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 5, let's just jump right in. Um, Now, Please do not laugh. I'm going to read it as if I was preaching this in the first century because any letter that was written was most likely delivered uh, from someone who had rehearsed and practiced the letter. So if you get to the book of Romans, it's, it's, it was preached by Phoebe. Phoebe carried the message that is a letter to the church of Rome. She probably practiced it out loud with Paul to deliver it in a way that would bring transformation. So let's read chapter five. You ready? Now listen, you rich people. (laughs) Weep and wail because your misery, uh, of the misery that is coming, you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Amen, right? (laughs) Am I right? All right. This is a tough text. Can we just say amen? Amen. It's a hard text. This is such a challenging text. It's challenging for lots of reasons. It's challenging because he's calling out the wealthy. And that's hard to hear. Uh, It's challenging because uh, in previous sections in the book, James is writing to the church. He talks to people who are rich and full of wealth and have resource. And he gives them redemptive plans of how to live and react and and respond to the conditions. But in this one, there's no such redemptive behavior change. It is a prophetic lament. It is a prophetic lament. 
Now, in its prophetic lament, I'm going to hold off on the, the tension. I'll, I'll re- release the tension in just a moment. Stay with me. In this prophetic warning, it feels a bit more like Amos, the book uh, in the Old Testament, where uh, James or the prophet Amos challenges the people of God and calls down judgments based on the people of God misusing wealth and finances and resource and oppressing the poor. James, in a similar way, he does not hold back. He says, if you're wealthy and using your wealth for security, If you're wealthy and you've put your trust or your allegiance and faith in your money or your stuff, or if you're hoarding earthly wealth and not sharing and building the kingdom of God, then your resources, your riches will be bearing witness against you on the day of judgment. It's heavy. If you've lived a luxurious lifestyle, if you've used your, if you have the luxury of employing people and you've oppressed those people or marginalized people in the position of power that you have, your stuff condemn you on that day of judgment. In other words, all you get to do is wail and weep in the coming suffering you have. Doesn't feel very New Testament like, does it? Right? I love going through the books uh, of the Bible. I love re- preaching on texts that are hard to preach on, that don't necessarily make tense, uh, sense in the moment. Because as you study scripture, um, you see that when you do the work, context brings all sorts of power to the interpretation of the text. Scholars debate this text. Now, it is a prophetic statement. He is calling out the future present. He says, it's not like one day your wealth will judge you or or be corroded. He's saying, look, right now it's corroded. And uh, what does he say specifically? Like your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. That is scary stuff. He's living into the future present. But scholars have debated this, but it's very clear. James is not talking to the church. James is not talking to wealthy people, rich people in the church. This is a prophetic call for outsiders who do not have faith in Jesus. So it's a Greek term. Uh, this is like, you're like, okay, I can breathe. Whew, this is going to be a tough one. I told you, no. Um, there's a Greek literary device that James uses called apostrophe. It's a, 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 a thing that's used to speak to people who are present about people who aren't present for the benefit of people who are present. So James's context is a bunch of Christians, some wealthy, very wealthy, but mostly poor, living under the occupation uh, of the Roman Empire. Is, they're living in Israel under the occupation of the Romans occupied Israel. And most of the Romans were extremely wealthy. And he's calling out those people who don't have faith in God and put their faith and use their wealth um, for their own purposes. He talks about self-indulgence. He talks about uh, fattening themselves up on the day of slaughter. He talks about oppressing uh, the poor and those who they're working for. So this is a prophetic warning for outsiders. But in the prophetic warning, there is a vision for kingdom living now. There is a vision for how we are called as followers of Jesus to live in congruence with our faith. This entire book of James is about you becoming perfect. 
Not perfect, like you got everything figured out. Perfect in the Hebrew sense, shalom. Living in wholeness, integrated self, congruence where the things that you believe, the things that you know in your heart, the center of your being, are reflected in your behavior and your lifestyle. That's wholeness, where your ideas of God, your faith in Jesus are reflected in your daily life. And throughout the book of James, we have one more week in this series. We've been talking about both the vision that James and Jesus has for you as a disciple, but also the obstacles that get in the way of you living a congruent life. Obstacles that we've named, anger being one of those things. Your temper, Uh, obstacles like wisdom. Living in the way of the world produces a different kind of wisdom that's not inspired by heaven or Jesus. It's inspired by demonic. And so we got to learn how to live in this world with cultural discernment. We can't just live like the rest of the world. We got to live with wisdom from heaven. Not just anger, not just wisdom, um, but your judgment towards other people. Uh, Your words, You have to become a person who speaks with love and edifies others. So your words become an obstacle. Your anger becomes an obstacle. The wisdom of the world becomes an obstacle. And money and wealth will be an obstacle for you to live the way of the kingdom or to live congruent in this world as a disciple of Jesus. Are you with me? So far so good? Okay, so... Uh, We're going to talk about money. I want to just talk about, if that's okay, money, wealth, materialism, and the kingdom of God. I want to make sure you understand that I don't, James does not believe you can't be a a wealthy Christian. Can we just get that out of our system? I'm going to address the lie that he's not against being rich. He's not against having lots of things. He's not against having lots of money. He's against the love of those things, the allegiance to the, of those things, where the, the center of your will, your identity becomes attached to those things and that, those things become the source of identity, the source of the meaning of your life, the source of purpose of your life. They bring value that only God should bring to your life. And when you have those things, the more of those things, uh, there's a greater threat to those things taking, uh, taking you out, making you less, uh, not taking, how do I say this where it's not performance, uh, making you less congruent. Let's just leave it at that. So we know that it's okay to have those things, to be a person of wealth and influence. That's not a bad thing. It's what you do with it that matters. It's what those things produce in you that matters. And I want to give you a biblical teaching for wealth and money and resource and influence and how to manage those things from a biblical lens, from the lens of the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? This is a personal struggle for me. It's a personal struggle for lots of reasons. I want to identify some of those things for why we struggle with talking about money. How many of you struggle to talk about money in general? Raise your hands. Let's throw them up. How many, keep them up. How many don't like money being talked about in church? Can we just be honest for a moment? How many hate money? Oh, you don't really care? Okay. (laughs) Eight of you. I'm with you for lots of reasons. Personal issues. Like there's shame associated with money. I have have a, a history before I met my wife, who's amazing with money, of it being something that you hide, you don't really know what's coming in, you gotta live by faith, and, uh, and really that was irresponsibility. Um, and there's a lot of fear and shame and hiding around money. Some of you have that. When it comes to the church, it's the misuse and the abuse. 1-800-BIG-HAIR. 
um, or not to, not to like dishonor anyone, but there are people that have used the platforms of the church to become wealthy, and that's mixed with bad theology. But we talk about money because money's talked about a lot in scripture. It's, th- it's talked about three times more than love, seven times more than prayer. It's 15% of the Bible. 450 separate passages of the scripture are about money, and there's 2,200 references to the Bible. Jesus talks about money more than anything else except for the kingdom of God. That's crazy. More than prayer, money. We'll talk about why in a second. Now, one of the things I want to just get out of the way is when we talk about the wealthy, you're like, yeah, get those rich people. Yeah, go after them. <laughs> I, heard those, I heard those sighs. I heard those nudges. Thank God we're not one of them. Um, the question is, who's rich? One thing I just want to give you context for is this, just to frame uh, this conversation because it's probably 90 90% of us. So if your income is over $25,000 annually, uh, you're wealthier than 90% of the world. So 90% of, of the world, you're in the top 10% wealthiest people in the world if you make $25,000 more. If you make $50,000 or more, you're in the top 99%. Top 1%. We always hear that, that statistic. You're like, oh, that's not me. No, it is you. All right, can we just, okay. And you're like, okay, I'm not in that. I understand you're struggling. Totally, you're welcome here. This conversation is still for you. You don't learn how to do the things of the kingdom when you have more than enough. You learn when you, how to do the things of the kingdom when you don't have enough, okay? If you have, uh, let's skip these stats. They're just gonna make you feel even worse. Let's just go, <laughs> put them on the screen. Put them on the screen just quickly, all right? Let's just, okay, go to the next one. Yeah, go to the next one, next one. All right, okay, okay, don't go to the next one. Okay, what, uh, let's just make it blank. All right, so we're all rich. That's all I wanna say. We're all, and look, some of you are struggling, all jokes aside, we are here for you. We're gonna take care of your needs. We have a benevolence fund. We wanna steward the resources of our church, but we are all in the context, most of us, I'm gonna say 95% of our church are in the top 10% at least, so we're doing okay. Let's talk about what to do. Now, before that, I wanna address some of the issues in Southern California, okay? Reasons why we struggle with finances, reasons why we don't have a good theology of money is because there's all sorts of bad theology out there. And let's address some of those. The first one is the go- the prosperity gospel, yeah. right? It also is known as the health and wealth gospel. It came out of the word of faith movement, Pentecostal movement, which basically has this distorted, it's a good theology that's been distorted. All heresies are that way, by the way. It's like a, a, a partial truth. It's something that's true and then they distort a little bit more. So the prosperity gospel came out of the early 1900s and it's the belief that through Jesus' atonement on the cross, not only are sins canceled, but all sickness and poverty has been canceled because of the cross. And according to the teaching, you have a divine right through faith to wealth and prosperity and you gain access to financial wealth and God's blessing through tithing and giving. Now, do you see how this can become a problem? So, so here's some truth. Was your sin canceled on the cross through the atonement? Yes. Here's, now, now, is all sickness and, and financial poverty canceled because of the cross? No, but, but here's the thing. If heaven came to earth and God's vision for creation was realized, would there be sickness or poverty? Of course not. So what scholars call it is an over- Realize eschatology. Look that up later. But it's an over-realized eschatology. We live in the now and not yet. It does not 
uh, complete the gospel. We know saints in the New Testament lived in su- with suffering and poverty. We know that there are, uh, there's, it, there are times when God calls us into sacrifice. We know that the cross requires self-denial. So the health and wealth gospel, which is partially true, I do believe God wants to bless you. I do believe God wants you to prosper and flourish. But do I think God can be wielded like a vending machine? Just give a few bucks over here and God's gonna pump out your 401k plan overnight? I don't think that's how it works. I I think the Old Testament teaches actually it's a way of wisdom. It's living into the truths that have been formed from the beginning of creation. And in that life, you will prosper. You will experience flourishing. You will leave a legacy to the next generation by living biblical truths out. How we do in church? But the idea that you can just tithe and you're going to get a Cadillac, I don't think that's what, or Tesla, I don't know what it is today. What's the F-150 for my family? Um, surfboards, you know, Apple products, stuff like that. Like, I don't know, but, but there's a distortion. But let me, can I just make a little, can I just throw like a little pastoral aside? This is, this is Pastor Darren speaking where we just want to throw out all of that. Every person I know personally that gives generously and regularly tithes, they're blessed. The generous people are the most joyful people to be around. I've never met a disgruntled, generous person. (laughs) This is like, and there's, statistics I can list, which is, it's fascinating. Um, Eight out of 10 people who tithe have no credit card debt. Those who, now, those who tithe give 10% of their income in the United States is about 2.5% of the church. 2.5, this is the national average, 2.5% of regular church attenders. To be a regular church attender means you come more than two times a month. Um, tithe 10% of their income. Of that number, eight out of 10 have no credit card debt. 30% of them have no debt at all. Like, so statistically, they are blessed more so than those who aren't tithing because that's the statistic out there. All to say, I can, I can like, I'm not, I do not believe in the prosperity gospel, but I do believe in God's favor and blessing on those who step into the flow of generosity. We'll talk about this at the end. Does that make sense? I just want to challenge you now early on because we're going to talk about becoming, uh, we're going to talk about, th- this, is, this is the response, right? This is the end, all I have for you, okay? Is to steward resources generously. That's my one point. Steward resources generously. That is the only biblical perspective we can have for managing the resources of life in the way of the kingdom. We are to steward. What it, does that mean? Resources, what, 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 what we value matters generously. So we have to become people who live generously with everything, not just your money, that's part of it, but all things, that's the point. Here's my one little caveat right now is you gotta learn to live generously towards God. Don't do it for selfish reasons, but I just wanna test you, try it. Give it three months, money back guaranteed. I would love to set this up with our team. Be like, hey, let's do a three-month trial. You tied 10% for three months, and if, it, if your life wasn't blessed, we'll give you your money back. That would be really cool if we could do that. I, I, I'm not saying that now. <laughs> but I would test God on that. I would. I've seen it in my own life. All to say, 
Um, there is some nuance in there that I would just want. The second thing, second idolatry that I want to see, the second issue with money that I see in our church, this is the most favorite, this is, this is the one we most struggle with in Southern California, in the church. We don't do prosperity well, we do this one well. It's what I would like to call the compartmentalized gospel. Call it the American gospel. You know, Thomas Jefferson, he created his own Bible. I don't know if you know about the Jefferson Bible. He cut out, physically cut out all of the miracle stories in the Bible because he was a humanist. He did not believe in the supernatural. So he just cut it out and made the Bible fit his worldview. We do the same thing with Jesus's gospel in our lives. I'm going to give you my Sunday morning. I'm going to give you my Wednesday house church night. I'm going to give you a couple of percentages of my income, but it's my income. I'm going to give you some of my, my uh, time, some of my calendar, some of my relationships, but the way I am in house church is not how I am on Monday through Friday at work or with my employees. So I compartmentalize my life. You're Lord of this part and this part and this part, but not all of the parts, so we compartmentalize the gospel. Jesus wants my spiritual life, not my wealth. Jesus wants my spiritual life, not my sexual identity. Jesus wants my spiritual life, not my politics. Jesus wants my spirit life, not fill in the blank here. Compartmentalized gospel. Do you see how alive and well that is? There's a, a f- character in history, Charlemagne, you know him, the Roman emperor, who uh, unified Christianity during a season of chaos in the seven, I think seven or eight hundreds. I don't remember exactly, but I do know the story of his baptism. He let his soldiers all get confessed Jesus and they got baptized holding the sword out of the waters, their right arm, I think. And they could, Jesus could basically have all of this, but none of this. That way they can kill without feeling guilt as soldiers. This is what I'm talking about. They're like, oh, that's terrible. You do the same thing. Private browsing? What? It's for the spy software. Sure it is. You're addicted to porn. Oh, I should have said that one. Again, statistics, it's like 90% of in, the, in this room. Sometimes there's, there's things we, we prefer to just leave vague ominous out there because it doesn't hurt as much. But when we talk about money, we're talking about the thing probably closest to our heart. So the third thing I'll just want to confront real quick is uh, one thing that I definitely struggled with, and it's the poverty gospel. It's the poverty gospel. Um, The poverty gospel is this moral elevation of being poor. And I see it a lot in Christian circles, different kinds of Christian circles. It's the opposite of the prosperity gospel. But it's the idea of like money is evil. Money is not evil. The, the root of all evil is money. So money in itself is, is neutral. It can be used for good or bad. But it's the love of money. It's the trust of money. It's the, the best word is it's the allegiance to. It's what money can bring. Nothing else is as powerful as wealth and money in forming security and comfort and freedom and independence and autonomy. That sounds a lot like what Jesus does for you. And we take money and put our trust in those things and what those things produce. And that becomes the idol that Jesus wants to confront, which he does in Matthew chapter six. We'll get there in a second. But the poverty gospel, essentially, if, if it's not the prosperity gospel, if we don't compartmentalize, what do we do with the scriptures that really scare us? Like James 5, 
We take a reading and we miss the now listen piece, which is meaning he's speaking to outsiders. And we think, oh no, we better, we better weep because our flesh will be eaten with fire. Like that's by our stuff. That's what he's saying. That all of the accumulation of goods will bear witness against us on judgment day. So therefore, the proper thing is to get rid of everything we have and live in poverty. I I struggle with this one. Because I get to Matthew 19 and there was a season in my life where I was pursuing minimalism and simplicity to the nth degree. My wife did not like that spiritual discipline. (laughs) How come you have so many shoes, babe? She's like, hold off. That's, Jesus is not talking to me about that. He's <laughs> talking to you. It's funny how we take words whispered to us for personal obedience and try to make it more, more everyone else. We prescribe it to everyone else to feel better or justify our obscurity. Like I think in this room, there are whispers that, of obscurity. Do this thing that doesn't make sense. Just this week, I was praying, and this thought popped into my head about someone, and it was just like a a fleeting thought, but then I have a meeting, and that thought came back in, and in that conversation, I was like, something's going on. We need to address, we need to talk to this person and see if they're in need, and sure enough, that person was in need, but it wasn't just that. It's that the Lord prompted me to not just identify a problem, but to be a part of the solution. Like there are a million ways, a million times a day the Lord is wanting to whisper to you if you're an obedient conduit of his grace. And he'll use whatever resource you have. You might not have enough to pay that person's rent, but you might have enough for gas for that moment. You become directed by the will of the Father. Poverty gospel makes you think that you're doing it better. I get it from Matthew 19. And just lean in for a little bit because I have a lot to teach you um, that I'm actually really passionate about. And I'm realizing this is a contested concept. What I think the Lord wants to do is actually release wealth. This isn't a prosperity. He wants to release wealth and influence and resource and platform and capacity on the Christian church to change and tilt the economy towards heaven. But the problem is we haven't been trustworthy. So look at what it says in Matthew 19 at the end of uh, this moment where he's asked by this rich young ruler how to inherit eternal life. Verse 23, after this guy walks away, Jesus says, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You read this text, and before, I'm just going to summarize it. This rich young man who's blessed by all Jewish standards comes to Jesus and says, what do I do to inherit eternal life, like live the life that is blessed by God. And he he lists off these commands. And when you read it, you're like, it's the last five of the 10 commandments, which have to do with human relationships. But he he leaves out, it's like he lists, you know, honor your father and mother. And he leaves out, thou shalt not covet. Because that's connected to his heart. The guy says, I've done all these things. And Jesus is like, yeah, so why don't you sell everything and give it to the poor and then come follow me? So what we tend to do is we take this one issue and we think this is what Jesus wants for the wealthy. 
We take a specific occasional moment for one guy's heart and we apply it universally for the church. So you have like the Franciscan movement where St. Francis has this and he does the same thing and he creates a whole movement of that, that requires a vow of poverty. And I get vows of poverty. There are seasons where you should pursue simplicity. You should pursue those things, but it's not prescriptive. I'll get to that in one second. I wanna just say the rich young ruler was about one guy and one of his heart issues. His stuff owned him. He did not own his stuff. The question you should ask regularly is, do I own my stuff or does my stuff own me? But it's not just that. If it was prescriptive, then why didn't Zacchaeus get it wrong? Like Zacchaeus was a rich tax collector, not blessed, excommunicated, sinner of sinners, chief tax collector. And he's hanging out with Jesus at, a, at lunch and he gets up from the table. He's like, hey, I'm gonna give half my stuff to the poor. Jesus didn't say, no, 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 that's not how it works. All of your stuff. No, he says, today salvation is coming to your home. Well done, Zacchaeus. You too are a son of Abraham. It's not prescriptive. It's a heart issue. And the poverty gospel is dangerous. Actually, let me read this from Dallas Willard. He says, should we not be like the birds of the air, which sow um, not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns? Matthew chapter six, verse 26. That seems to be the true life of faith. If that's true though, how could we fail to, how could, uh, how could we fail to include poverty in our list of the central disciplines for the spiritual life? There's a very good reason why not. The idealization of poverty is one of the most dangerous illusions of Christians in the contemporary world. Stewardship, which requires possessions and including, includes giving, is the true spiritual discipline in relation to wealth. Listen to this. He says, look, he's teaching in this book, Spirit of the Disciplines. He's talking about the, these disciplines of Jesus that require us to practice, to live out the lifestyle of Jesus so that we can have the life of Jesus. He, and he challenges this view of poverty as a discipline. He says, look, poverty's not the solution. And he'll go on to make the case, like at some point, if you just give the money away, you're no longer able to steward. Someone else has to do the stewarding for you. Instead, he says, the real discipline is stewardship. And stewardship requires you having possessions and being generous. And, he, and he'll go on to make the case of what stewardship looks like. I highly recommend this book. But that's what I want to say is we can't live with a prosperity gospel, a compartmentalized gospel, or a poverty gospel. Because if God's heaven came, there would be no poverty. That would be alleviated. Everyone would have what they need. Poverty is an injustice from Satan. Are you guys okay? So what do we do? <laughs> How then do we view our money, our wealth, our resources in a way that reflects congruence, wholeness, shalom, that reflects our devotion to Jesus? If it's not give more money away, here's the thing about that. Some of you absolutely need to give more money away. But let me just say this. You can give all of your money to the poor, quoting Paul here, and not have love, and it's meaningless. The goal is not the amount. The goal is your heart. So let's talk about that. So what do we do? And I just give you one sentence to remember from this day for the rest of your life. Steward resources generously. That's it. This is a holistic approach from Genesis to Revelation of what you're called to as kingdom disciples. You're to steward resources generously. So let's talk about what it means to be a steward, what it means to invest in the eternal or to use our resources for eternity and to be generous with the few moments we have left. Are you guys with me? 11 o'clock? Okay. 
The solution to our faith is not to live in poverty. It's to be stewards of what God's given us. Jesus wants to train you to use money and possessions and wealth in a way that expands the kingdom of heavens. How many of you know that how you handle wealth, money, and resources has eternal impact? How you handle whatever money you get from your Starbucks job, however big that 200 square foot room is in the room you share with a bunch of roommates, how, however new that 2002 Dodge Neon is, how, you're like, Dodge Neon, do they make that? No, but I had it for a long time, relax. <laughs> my grandma gave it to me. And it was a stick shift. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, had to teach me how to drive stick because nobody in SoCal drove an, a stick shift. She taught me. That was hilarious, by the way. How you steward your stuff, your knowledge. Let me just, let's just go, what do I mean? Because uh, I don't want to get just wealth and money. as it, How you steward the crisis of mental health that came into your family that took you out for two years, but then you came out on the other side and then you were able to experience healing and transformation. And now your life is a reflection of what's possible for those who are suffering with the same thing. How you steward that experience matters for eternity. How you steward your age. One of the things I love about moving to this new location is we got a lot of older people in our church. Right? Can I, can I hear it for like the 50 pluses? Hallelujah. Let's go. Yes. I love it. I want a multi-generational church. I love it. I, I've been like, like we're telling stories. I'm like, I saw a whole batch of older people coming in with their big old leather bound Bibles. They're my people. Let's go. <laughs> Prayed for you from day one. It's been so hard because let me tell you why. How you steward life and your age matters. If you're in your 50s plus, you have a lot to give away, more than the 20s and 30s, 100%. And you know it, the younger ones don't yet. They need to know. I tell people all the time how to get spiritual mothers and fathers and mentors. Find someone who's older, bring a bunch of questions, pay for the meal, ask a lot of questions, write down what you learned, follow up with them, treat them, out, treat them again once you finish what they said. Because so much of this life is that we think we have it figured out. But let me also say to the older folks, you have to go after giving it away. Don't retire. There is no retirement in the kingdom of God. All right, you might not work anymore, but you have a lot more time for the kingdom. And let me just say, if you're a college student, you have a lot to give away to the youth. And every college student should be serving in youth. Every 20-something should be walking with college students. Every 30-something should be walking with the 20s, 40s. We should be just one, one ten decade later giving away what we learned. If you don't have kids yet and you're married, you should be hanging out with people who have been married for a while so they can help you when the crisis comes. They can say, it's okay. You're going to be just fine. You're like, oh, thank God. If you have little kids, you should hang out with people that have older kids so you can learn. They're going to say the same thing to you. It's okay. You're going to be just fine. If you got teens, you should hang out with people who went through the teenage years. I'm watching friends go through the teenage years and I'm already praying for my boys. I want your help to get me through those years. And, and it goes on empty nesters. You need people who have gone through the empty nesting season. We need to give it away. 
We need to be in each other's lives and steward relationships. That's what matters. Number one thing is that we have to recognize how we steward resources now has eternal impact. Look at the cha uh, Luke chapter 16. This is a parable about the kingdom of God. Man, I could preach for days on this stuff. Luke 16, here we go. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So look at little and much. So look at what he says the little things are. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, the little, who will trust you with true riches? The kingdom stuff over here. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, this is the mindset that Jesus gives us as a steward. This is not our stuff. That crisis that he walked you through is not yours alone. It's now his to be used for the kingdom. The wealth, the knowledge, the access, the relationships, that job that gave you finance that empowered your future and now you have a different career and you hired people. All that stuff is grace given to you for the sake of not just uh, yourself and not just your own enjoyment, but for stewarding on behalf of. Let me keep reading this. Remind me to talk about enjoyment. Do not let me forget about pleasure and enjoyment in a second. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, no one will give you property of your own. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you can't be trusted with the very little things, the stuff we have access to right now, then he won't trust you in the age to come. I love the King James translation. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. When we steward what we have with the kingdom values, God increases our capacity to handle true riches for eternity. If we are faithful with our income, if we are faithful with our resources, if we are faithful with the wealth that we have in this world and the resources of this world, he will give us more in the age to come. As a disciple, we steward all of our resources on behalf of the kingdom. Now again, get rid of the poverty mindset. This doesn't mean give everything away. That might not, that's not always stewardship. You might be able to invest in a way that gives away well beyond your years when you die. Am I, do you know what I'm talking about? You might be able to invest in this life in a way that is stewarded beyond you. There's ways of being generous creatively. But it's not just about, uh, when I think about poverty gospel, I think about sacrifice. Like you just got to endure for the Lord. And church planners love that. We just want to suffer. It makes us feel better about ourselves. And then we project it on all the volunteers. You're not doing enough. You need to serve more in this. And, and that's coming from a place of false gospel and broken relationship with the Father. When I challenge you to give more, that doesn't mean God's going to love you more. He can't possibly love you more than he already does. So get that lie out of your head. But when I challenge you to give more, it also means you got to learn how to love God through that way. And I just want to say, you can have very little money and be wealthy beyond the wildest imagination because of your relationship to your stuff and those things. You could have the most money in the world and be really poor in spirit. There's a, there's a contrast. But also... I want to say in general, and it's not for all of you, but it's for some of you, okay? Most of you are obsessed with yourself, so just forget this. <laughs> just saying it how it is. Some of you need to enjoy life more. 
and God's given you wealth, you've stewarded it, you're generous, you can buy that nice thing. You can have a nice vacation for yourself. You can buy the shoes that are a little more. I just think we gotta have permission. God created creation for our enjoyment. Like it's not like, all right, we're gonna create this problem. We're gonna fix the problem. No, he delighted in creation. He loves it. Like part of our image bearing capacity is to enjoy and delight in creation, in beauty, in art, in rest, in pleasure, in each other, in relationships. That's what it's for, okay? A little side note for you. You're welcome. Again, it's not for all of you. You know who you are. Narcissists, don't think about it. You need to give. <laughs> Let's define the word stewardship or steward. In Hebrew, this is from Donald Graybill, the Upside Down Kingdom. I love this definition. In Hebrew, steward means manager over the house. The steward is an official who controls a large household for the master. It's, certain, uh, it's certainly fitting for Christians to use the term stewardship to describe our relationship to property or resources because the concept reminds us that God is in fact, God in fact owns the property or resource. But what do we do, uh, sorry, but what do we mean by stewardship? It's helpful to distinguish between the wishes of the owner and the wishes of the steward. The steward is responsible to manage the property according to the master's wishes, not the steward's. We sometimes use the term stewardship to whitewash our own desires. We may, for example, say stewardship means taking whatever resource we have, multiplying them as fast as possible and using them for our own purposes. A steward in the kingdom is one who cares and cultivates their whole life, including resources and possessions on behalf of God's desires, values, and purposes. So you need to know what God desires. So that's number one, a steward. I'm gonna keep going because we don't, for the sake of time. Number two is uh, how... How do we, we got to know the values of the kingdom. We got to know, as a steward, we got to know what God desires. As we invest in the eternal, we got to know the value of the kingdom. Invest in things that matter. Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So every human treasures something. Every heart treasures. Treasuring is placing value or worth on something. It's where you spend your time, your energy, your focus. It's the things that bring value and capacity. Some of you are really valued the amount of money in your bank. It gives you a lot of purpose and meaning. It gives you a lot of identity. But we got to know the kingdom value. Know what matters most and invest in those things. Jesus wants us to live this life in a way that our investments are lasting forever. They will go on for eternity. The things that matter most last for eternity. I was uh, at a Last year at a family reunion, a little gathering outside of Mendocino in a place that never saw sunlight on the coast uh, at a KOA. And uh, we all had trailers. It was awesome. But there was this really cool thing that Alex's papa did. He brought these silver dollars that he collected and he put them all over the beach for all of his grandkids and gave them this uh, treasure, uh, what is it called? A metal detector. And, and they, they found these silver dollars. And it was awesome. Like our kids found a couple. And we looked up the value of the silver dollars. They were not worth a dollar. Some of them were, were worth nearly $1,000 that we got. And I was like, Papa doesn't know what he's giving away. 
I was like, guys, let's go back out and see if he forgot any out there. We're going to pay off some things. You know what I'm saying? He didn't know the value. I don't think. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. But you got to know what, you, what really matters in the kingdom. And let me just say something to you. Because the question I regularly ask is, well, what, what, do we tre- what kind of treasure lasts for eternity? Well, I got to say, the, the one I'm 100% certain on is relationships. Like success in the kingdom of God is healthy, loving relationships. And sometimes the relationships that matter most are the ones we don't invest in. We take for granted. Deeply convicted by it. And God wants to put in the work to know the value, to honor the worth that's there, to treasure it. Jesus doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He says where your treasure is, underneath it, there your heart is. So if you want to see what really matters, start poking around doing a life audit and you'll, you'll discover the things that bring you value, purpose, meaning, and significance, your heart. Um, but as we think about things of the kingdom, I, I think number one is relationship. Number two is, is uh, how do you invest in a way that lasts for eternity? I was thinking about this. So it's clearly all of our resources we can steward in a way that impacts eternity. But the second thing I was thinking about in, in terms of investment is uh, obedience. Like, I know this is a weird one, but when, when, when Jesus whispers things to you in obscurity, you have a choice to obey or to disobey. But when you obey, you get impact. You have eternal impact. You get rewarded from the Father. You inherit access to things you didn't even know about. Like there's like a, there's, there's an investment that's astronomical. It's like when Jesus says like the kingdom of God is like a field and some seeds go here, some seeds go there. Some seeds will produce a hundredfold. That's ridiculous amount. That does not make sense on this planet. A hundredfold return is ridiculous. He's saying some of you will become those kinds of people in the same way that he'll say, hey, um, a prophet's without honor in his own home. Uh, but if you honor a prophet, if you, in, in the name of a prophet, you receive a prophet in the name of the prophet, you'll receive a prophet's reward. He's saying that in the kingdom of God, when you choose to honor people for who they are, when you recognize what they carry, the gift they have, and you, you honor that gift, you gain access to the whole ministry. So whenever I have friends come in to preach, I, I, I try to honor them. I try to bless them. You guys should be fighting to take them to lunch, hosting them in your homes. Like there is a reward hundredfold for the, when, the, when the church recognizes the kingdom value system. doesn't make sense. But you gotta be trained in the lens of the kingdom. And the way you, you get trained is by taking your everyday ordinary stuff and saying, God, what do you want me to do with this? This is yours. How does this bring you glory? However little or much you have today, there is an exponential reward on the other side. And that's what it means to invest. I could talk for more on that, but for the sake of time, let's go to number three. Number three is to be generous. So we are going to steward resources generously. This is perhaps the greatest argument in all of scripture, that what the people of God are designed to be is generous to the world. It's not just a generosity with stuff, although that's part of it. It's a generosity of heart. It's a generosity of spirit. It's sharing. It's giving away. It's including. It's hospitality. It's an entire value culture of the kingdom of God. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Like the very nature of the Trinity is a giving, generous person outward towards the other. Jesus 
prefers the Father, the Father to the Son and the Spirit to both. You see this dynamic loving relationship in the Trinity and yet that's also how we're designed to be. We give life. We produce life and we're called to give our lives away. The cross is the ultimate expression, giving one's life away for others to flourish for the rest of eternity. The very nature of God, the very cosmos is designed around this Trinitarian view of generosity and preferring the other. And as the people of God, this is what we're called into. And I could teach on so many scriptures that have to do with generosity, but I want to choose one in particular. Um, It's from Deuteronomy 15. And here's the deal. The story of Deuteronomy is a story of what the people of God do as they step into a place of abundance. So before this, people of God lived on, they lived dependent upon God. God provided food, manna, provided water. He provided for them as they wandered around the wilderness. In in Deuteronomy, these are laws for the people of God to follow as they go into a place of abundance. When you go into a place of abundance where there's access to wealth and resource, land flowing with milk and honey, you're gonna have cattle, you're gonna have fruit, you're gonna have, um, you're gonna have wine, you're gonna have homes and multiple homes and grandkids. When you get to this space, this book is to help you remain faithful to God. And there's all sorts of provisionary laws in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy that teach the people of God how to live with each other. There's one in particular, I'm just going to read a couple of verses and then we'll we'll close it out with some thoughts. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 15 says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. You should circle hard-hearted and tight-fisted. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. So in this, there's all these laws. There's like jubilee, debts are going to be canceled. But there's this like over and over again, there's like this provisionary law for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, those that don't have access, those that don't have their own land of abundance. And this, the teaching for the, from the Lord is to always care for those that don't have enough. And what he says essentially is this, like, look, there's going to be a point in your life when you have enough. You, you, your rent's paid, food in the fridge, you have gas money to get you to and from. You got a job. You know where money's coming from. Some of you aren't in that place. In this church, some of you are not in that place. Most of us are in that place. Now, here's what he says. Look, when someone asks to borrow from you, when someone needs something, don't be hard-hearted. Don't close off your heart to the need. Don't curse Gavin Newsom at, with the issues that he's brought to California that's, that's, that's like a real legit thing I see happen in California. Oh, it's, it's his problem. No, 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 no. This is now your problem if it's face-to-face. You have responsibility in this moment to steward where you are. Don't be hard-hearted. Now, the thing about hard-hearted is so interesting because that, that phrase is used in Exodus over and over again for one character alone, Pharaoh. And I think what Moses is doing is saying, look, the way of empire starts with you being hard-hearted towards the poor. The way you get to a person like Pharaoh that oppresses the least of these, makes them make bricks and live as slaves seven days a week, is a simple thought where you think to yourself, I'm not going to do it. You harden your heart to the need. So the command is to stay soft-hearted. Stay soft-hearted and open-handed. Someone asks, you give. When someone needs, you provide. 
hard-hearted, so, uh, so hard-hearted to soft-hearted, closed or tight-fisted to open-handed. This is the way of generosity. That what we do as followers of Jesus, we learn to be generous towards our brothers and sisters. We are called to be generous, to open our hearts to each other, to share our resources, to give away the things that we have so that the kingdom can expand. So you're called to take account as a steward of what you have access to, to do an audit. See what you have. And then to ask yourself, is what I'm doing with this, is it valuing the things of the kingdom? And then, Lord, how do I learn to be generous with what I do have? It doesn't matter how much money you make. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart disposition. It's about the heart direction towards people with the things. It's about the heart being formed towards kingdom um, activity. And so every chance we get, we learn to be generous. The call on the church is to be a steward that values the things of the kingdom and lives generously with everyone in in action, with word, with heart disposition, and with our stuff. That's the call. And so when, when we have this prophetic moment where James calls out the outsider, we can say we will not be like them in the church. We will not be using our stuff for luxury and self-indulgence without ensuring the care of God's beautiful creation around us in our community. We will choose to be stewards. We will choose to be uh, generous and we will, stu- stu- uh, we will look to invest in things that matter most. So I want to challenge you to be those three things. To invest in the eternal, that's, that's something you got to look after. But to be generous. To be generous now. You could be a college student making very little and learn the way of generosity right now. Generosity doesn't start when you make more than you need. It starts when you barely have enough. And it doesn't have to be money. It could be time. Be generous. I long for our community to be known by our generosity. And there are glimpses of it. But the statistics are true of the church here. About 12, 15% of you cover 90% of the needs of our church. It's just the reality. How might God invite you into living generously? How might he invite you to steward what you have? Those are the questions I want you to leave with today. All right? Amen? All right, let's stand. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.